My name is Scott Challoner, and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to that end, we're joined on today's programme by Jonathan Parsons, an NHS consultant clinical audiology scientist and managing director of CHIME, an NHS audiology service that utilised the government right to request scheme to spin out as a not-for-profit social enterprise in May 2011. Um, John, a very warm welcome to yourself and by all means, thank you for joining us on the programme. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Hi Scott, Uh, great to be here, thank you. Yes, likewise, Jonathan. Real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme. Now, um, it's an interesting sort of story as to sort of how Chime originated, isn't it, really? Sort of you used that right to request scheme by the government there, as I've just outlined, to kind of spin out of an NHS hospital into a social enterprise. And then you made that step from being a clinician, essentially, into sort of a managing director role in leading that social enterprise. So, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of that process and what that journey was like from a personal perspective moving into that leadership role? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, up, up to the point where we spun out the social enterprise, I guess my career in terms of management was pretty much like the normal NHS route. Mm. Uh, you progress to being as, as high a level clinician as you can be. And then at some point, someone says, right, I think you ought to be head of department and you apply for a post. Honestly, with probably little experience of of leading a service, but with lots of experience doing complicated things clinically. Um, So my baptism of fire with that was was in Devon at the end of 1995. And you learn quickly how to manage within the NHS, how to identify where funding is and perhaps what happens to you if you overspend or what doesn't happen to you and and, and really trying to justify the level of service um, and was quite successful with that for, for a number of years and to do with politics, our service moved to uh, more community control while staying physically within an acute trust. So that gave us some separation from the original organisation that hosted us and put it more onto a sort of a contractual setting. But still, we were managed within NHS, had different bedfellows in terms of who were lumped together within a directorate. But you, you kind of had to, had to manage that budget in line with other services. Money was moved around that you had you know, little, little choice over. So we investigated right to request when it came along, and I think the principles were, were around if you could show that um, you could run this better as a business directly contracted, owned by your staff, then they had to, or the, the CCG had to um, look at a credible business case and, and give you a sensible answer. Uh, we were supported to do that. We were one of few in, in Devon that, that were. Um, and I think. You know, to cut a very long story short, the, the really big positive about that was you have certainty in terms of your budget. So, you, okay, you negotiate mm. a settlement, but then you know what you're going to get for the year. And it's down to you how you use that money in order to meet the key performance indicators in the contract. And if you save money in one area of audiology, then you have to use it in another area of audiology. So you 
immediately incentivized, motivated in order to make things as efficient as you can, knowing that you make use of the money. So uh, we were able to do that with things like urinate contracts. And according to the Department of Health, the secret source is the employee ownership thing. And, and that's been a journey. Um, and, I, and I think it is true, but it takes a really long time to move a clinical service managed in the traditional NHS way into a not-for-profit business competing with uh, often now uh, commercial AQP providers in, in the hearing aid industry. So, um, yeah, I had to grow into that and um, lots of changes and, and my role is, is significantly a very small clinical one now and very much a, a managerial and organisational um, kind of business one. Yeah, absolutely. And then having kind of gotten used to sort of that role of sort of managing and leading people over the years, I suppose that when it came to the last couple of years with the pandemic, I mean, that probably sort of changed uh, the emphasis on that immensely. And uh, I do want to talk about the last couple of years now, in a sense, because did it sort of demand that you had to kind of almost adjust your kind of leadership style in order to manage sort of staff and their morale, given everything that was going on around you at the time? It, it was it was very interesting, and we were, as I mentioned earlier, we were physically within the acute hospital. And mm-hmm. one of the things that happened quickly was that uh, relationships with the acute hospital got much much better, and it was more inclusive. And we were included in in hospital wide measures in relation to COVID. Um, so it was positive in that respect in terms of the relationship they had with the acute trust, who we're contracted to in a small way. Um, staff volunteered in early days in relation to fit testing and newborn hearing screening, etc. And we did little audiology for the first three months. After that, CCG said, right, we're going to hold you to contract. Um, we want you to do what you contracted to do for the final nine months of the year. And, and that's proven very different to traditional audiology services as part of the hospital who mm. are uh, managed in terms of what they do by the general hospital interest. So uh, it's probably one of the best examples of of being able to act quickly in the interests of audiology. We changed hearing aid suppliers very, very quickly um, and pivoted in order to take that service um, online, basically. So the, the current hearing aids that we were using were great, but didn't have the online facility, so we moved to a different company that allowed us to do that. Um, and met our contract obligations in terms of fitting um, just over 3,000 hearing aid pathways, nearly all remotely. So via iPads, um, via PCs, telephones, sending the hearing aids out, having them connect up the hearing aids, just having virtual appointments. Um, so so we, we worked really hard over that um those, those two years and it, it, the change in the service that, that will never go back completely to, to face-to-face in the way that it was before. So you learn lessons in, in, in what you're forced to do mm. um, and what you're forced to do sometimes is probably what you could have been doing anyway or, or some should have been doing. But to, to go back to your point about staff, yeah, I mean, it's been a tough old time and mm. we had long periods where very few of us were ill but a lot of people working from home or coming in on a, on a temporary basis, we were able to avoid furlough, so people were paid um, to a full extent. Um, 
but often not doing as much audiology or, or uh, seeing patients as they'd seen before, or as I said, in the new way. Um, the last year has probably been been much more difficult. Many people have been off. Anyone with kids has been off. Some people have been off twice. So it, it is a, uh, a constant battle to keep morale up and to keep us talking as, a, as, a, as an organisation. There are 70 of us, just upwards of 70 of us, um, but whilst based in Exeter, we go out to 16 different localities. So on any one mm. day, and most people don't necessarily see other people within Chime. So in one sense, you could say, oh, well, well we're used to it. But uh, under those, under the difficult circumstances, um, yeah, people are more anxious, um, no opportunities to socialise. We've done things like uh, introducing uh, an all-Chime call every Thursday, and we've mm. continued that, and we'll continue to do it. Every five weeks, we have a, a longer call. But really, it's anybody who can access that. Um, we're talking about how things are, what's happened during the week, what new things are happening. Um, we also do something called engagement multiplier. So that's the survey uh, that happens every three months. And it allows us to gauge really how it engaged the, the uh, members of Chime are. And that's kept really high. It's also an opportunity, not from just to answer questions, but for anonymously to make comments or suggestions, etc. And then as, as MD, I'm able to respond to that conversation anonymously. And um, we have a number of back and forths which help us to to drill down into particular issues that are worrying uh, members or, or teams within China. So this week, um, for me, has been one of those weeks where responding to um, that communication, and you learn some really interesting stuff. So, mm. um, yeah, to summarise, it's been tough. Uh, we've tried hard. Everybody still gets anxious. Um, and we're really looking forward to getting back to a bit more socialising and getting teams together, which is... Um, as I said, always something that um, we need to do in time because we work away from each other so much. It's important, isn't it, not just for the social side of things, but also for that sort of in-person sharing of ideas, isn't it? I suppose it gets referred to in the United States as, you know, the water cooler moment where you're bouncing ideas yeah, off each other, yeah. you're sharing innovation. So it's certainly important from that perspective. And um, just and sort of, yeah. We've split sides. Um, hmm. uh, some of the, uh, some of the team don't necessarily get across to the main site very often at all. So we're having issues like, well, there are new staff and I've never even met them. Um, not me, but they're, they're saying that. Um, and, and so you have to you have to work out ways that you can uh, get around that. You do, absolutely right. And um, obviously we talked an awful lot about kind of the, um, the growing anxiety that you sort of became aware of um, as managing director. And uh, since sort of COVID, um, emerged and since obviously we've come out of the acute phase of it have you found that there is a lot more sort of openness about people talking about their own sort of mental health and well-being as a result of you know the fact that it's come into the national limelight through the pandemic Mm, i think um yeah whether it's a willingness to be more open or whether there are more issues than there were before but you Mm. i'm not sure which is true uh but certainly um the prevalence of those conversations is higher and um, it's driven us mm. to 
to re to reform the staff council into an employee engagement group, um, relaunch it, give it a budget um, in order that it can um, do things in terms of well-being. Um, so they're going to come up with some measures again <clears throat> that that may help with things like anxiety and mental health. That's certainly something I think they're keen on focusing on. And obviously when it comes to sort of managing yourself uh, from that perspective, from sort of a leadership point of view, um, do you feel that um, you kind of have to kind of take a lead by example in that sense and also kind of show that same openness and that same sort of authenticity, if you will? Yeah, I think absolutely. The more people understand that you're you're kind of just the same as them. And that, that's kind of one of the principles of social enterprise and um, employee ownership, isn't it? That nobody's mm. more important than anyone else, but we all have our roles. And if they can see you as human, approachable, um, willing to talk, then then only good things can come from that, I think. Mm. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. And um, just obviously reflecting on, you know, the experience of the last couple of years, and if we call it sort of crisis management, I suppose that despite all of the uh, the immense difficulty that's come out of this, I mean, you do feel like you probably learnt a lot from the experience as well, haven't you? I mean, certainly about how sort of processes can be reformed and sort of made better. But do you feel like sort of from a personal perspective, you've also learned more about sort of yourself and your team as well? Yeah, I think so. I think um, as a leader, you, you have to do that. You never you never have the whole answer, do you? Mm. It, it's all about continuing to be open to learning experiences um, and to to revise how uh, to understand your own feelings and to um, use that in the workplace. We've we've just completed um, ten of us a um, something called Creative Conversation Course, <clears throat> which has got different members of the team together uh, in a facilitated way to look at the way we talk to each other, to look at um, being open to having the best forms of conversation, uh, to summarise and understand. What, what your feelings are um, and to be clear about that. That's something we're going to roll out throughout the whole of the organisation. But it's been an eye-opener. If, if, if for nothing else, for that pause between uh, between listening and your kind of a, and an automatic reaction versus, versus understanding the importance of what the other person is telling you and, and having the opportunity to think about that wisely before responding or responding in a wise way perhaps a better way for them yes certainly and uh obviously the priority at the moment is you know sort of getting the nhs very much back on its feet as um, an overarching body and just making sure that that sort of covid backlog is now starting to uh, to be cleared and um as you're sort of eyeing up your sort of goals and ambitions for chime over the next uh, year or so just looking at that as a sort of initial benchmark, Jonathan, um, I'd be interested mm-hmm. just before we wrap up, um, what some of your kind of targets and ambitions are for this next year as we hopefully leave the pandemic behind decisively. Yeah, well, um, China's been around for uh, 11 years now and we've, we, we believe we've proved the model. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done innovative things like opening a store on the, High Street, which we use to income generate in order to support the NHS bottom line. Like we, we have to support the NHS bottom line. We're not we're all on NHS terms and conditions, etc. Um, but also, you know, a superb venue for NHS patients to be seen, and it's majority NHS patients that go through there. We we wouldn't have done those things, or we couldn't have done those things as a, as a an 
standard NHS audiology service. So we believe the model can work much, much wider. And obviously, a sensible place to start with that would be Devon. So we've had good conversations with local commissioners. And so the ambition over the year, because our last few years of our contract have been to assess our current contract with a, with a possibility of a, of a pan-Devon model mm. is to take that forward with commissioners. And that's a challenge because the NHS moves so slowly and you think you've got an effective model and they, they kind of agree with that, but there seems to be so many obstacles in the way to, to make that happen quickly. So it's being able to get on with colleagues in acute trust in, in neighbouring hospitals and for them to understand that there's nothing threatening by what China are doing. It doesn't um, remove their agency or their <clears throat> their own leadership um, skills um, or opportunities, but it does allow for a consistent, better service with patients. And in the long run, um, we're competing, as I said earlier, with commercial providers, and we have to be as efficient and effective as them. Mm. Um, and so it's over the next year, I hope that, that we're able to convince the CCG it's the way to go and that a directly contracted audiology service where they know what they're getting for the money would be effective, efficient, and um, start to meet the enormous growing needs of, of, of an elderly population in relation to hearing loss. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I hope it does go well for you because it is something that sounds so incredibly innovative, but it is just, of course, as you say, kind of getting through those layers of bureaucracy initially, isn't it, to get ideas like this off the ground. And um, I would also love the opportunity, Jonathan, to actually maybe catch up with you in future on this, just to see, you know, how all of that is being borne out for you and how far along the line it all is, because it's very interesting stuff you're doing. And uh, like I say, I mean, we do need to meet the needs of an ever-growing population um, of elderly people, and that's that's it's going to be so, so important in the future. Great. I'd love to do that, yeah. It'd be fantastic. Um, thank you as well for your time and joining us on the programme uh, today, Jonathan. It's been a real, real pleasure having you with us. And just for listeners tuning in uh, today as well, um, if you feel that you are sort of a business or social enterprise owner yourself and you feel you have your own story to share with us here at the Leaders' Council, then by all means, just like Jonathan, we would like to hear your story. So why not also apply to be on the show via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Um, Jonathan, once more, thank you for your time today and do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you, Scott. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, Jonathan, and to every single one of our listeners tuning in today, you've been tuning in to the Leaders' Council podcast with your host, Scott Chaloner. Please take care and goodbye.